0: Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. We have a very special guest today, Mr. Ryan McKellar. Ryan is the paleontological curator and director at the Royal Museum in Saskatchewan. He is an individual with a unique approach to life and to the backgrounds of life as we know it. Welcome to Seldom Said, Ryan. Oh, thank you for having me. I can certainly testify to your expertise and your patience. May, <laughs> may we start again with uh, a little bit of personal background who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place?
1: So um, I grew up in Alberta, the province uh, slightly to the west of Saskatchewan, where I'm currently working. And um, as a high school student and through university, I was interested in working on dinosaurs. Um, it sort of caught my imagination. Um, from there, I ended up working on um, invertebrates, the so things without backbones, including trilobites, um, these crustacean-like animals that were scurrying around the bottom of the ocean floor in Morocco in this case, or uh, what would eventually become Morocco, about 400 million years ago. And from there, um, actually returned to Western Canada to work on amber deposits um, associated with uh, Cretaceous ecosystems. So around the same time as the last dinosaurs. Um, more recently, we've been working on ambers that have been found in dinosaur bone beds. So they provide some sort of um, environmental information for dinosaur excavations and also remains of things like feathers and skeletons that are found in amber deposits that allow us to uh, basically view these animals in 3D in all sorts of glorious detail, including colors and pigments, things like that, that we don't see in other sorts of fossil deposits.
0: It's marvelous. I would imagine there's somebody in the listening audience who has seen virtually every Jurassic Park movie and considers uh, Steven Spielberg some sort of secular saint. That idea of DNA sampling, now they're talking about it in Siberia with mammoth. Do you buy into the premise that it could ever be possible with creatures as dated as dinosaurs?
1: Unfortunately, not with animals as old as dinosaurs. So, our best understanding right now is that DNA has a half life of about 500 years. So, at the extreme end of the range, we might be able to look at things like mammoths or um, bison or things that were basically ice age type mammals. Uh, um, Once you go beyond the million year mark, all bets are off though. Um, They've tried to recreate some of the science work that actually spurred the movie Jurassic Park. Um, So, in 1995 or thereabouts, They were doing work on amber um, and tissues preserved in amber, and they thought they'd recovered DNA fragments from some of this material. It turns out a lot of that is contaminants, and usually amber researchers are sort of the party poopers these days in that we have to um, explain that this sort of stuff doesn't work at that sort of time scale, unfortunately. The best we can hope for may be finding um, traces of chemicals that give us some sense of color, or maybe the degree of preservation. So maybe some iron and things like that that are related to um, original tissues, not necessarily the sort of building blocks you need to make a whole animal though.
0: Now if someone came to me and I just arrived on this planet and they used the word trilobite, I would not have the slightest idea. They could show me the parts of the animal as fossilized remains, but it would be awfully difficult to ascertain the assemblage of it How do we put together something as large as Scotty, the Tyrannosaurus or T-Rex that you have at the Royal Museum, without literally standing outside the bars and watching it walk around its cage?
1: We're lucky in that we have a number of samples. So Scotty wasn't found in isolation. Um, There's been a history of work on T-Rexes that stretches back to the early 1900s. And many of the famous fossil sites are actually in the United States. Um, and in some cases, well, if we're lucky with the T-Rex skeleton, we maybe find 50% of the bones involved. If we're really lucky, those 50% include the skull, and many of the bones are found near their original position. Um, at least five or six samples have included relatively complete skulls that allow us to find at least the most important bones in position. And um, specimens like Scotty, where the skull bones are scattered across a large area, we were able to take those bones and place them back in their original positions based on other animals. So it's a little bit of comparative anatomy work that saves the day.
0: Is it a leap of faith and a bit of guesswork?
1: Um, A little bit for some bones that are poorly represented. So some regions of the body aren't very well represented with T-Rexes. A good example would be some of the ribs that are on the belly. So unlike um, animals like us mammals, where we have one set of ribs that just sort of reach from our backbones, our spines, and encase our lungs and other organs, um, big theropod dinosaurs like T-Rex have that set of ribs plus another set of ribs called a gastral basket, um, they are these thin, thin uh, bones that are poorly preserved in most cases. They're maybe one inch across in diameter, um, but they prov- provide almost like a, a girdle-type um, scenario that protects the uh, belly region and sort of keeps the organs from swaying in front of the knees as they're moving forward on either side of the chest um, or, the, or the belly region. So some of those bones aren't very well preserved. We don't have them. Um, other examples would th- be things like the furcular, the wishbone, um, in T-rexes. So until, I guess, the early 2000s or thereabouts, there weren't many specimens of T-rexes with the wishbone that you'd get with your turkey dinner. Um, another one of those bones that shared between t- uh, tyrannosaurs and modern birds. Um, but with once people know that they should be looking for this bone or that this bone exists in one specimen, It spurs work in other collections for that weird bone that was misplaced or misshapen and poorly understood and allows us to place it on other specimens as well. The trick is finding one specimen, at least, where the bone is in place or close to in place, and it makes sense, um, and branching out from there.
0: One might take the position that these creatures are almost uh, spirit-like there are those who talk about evolution, about science, and how we've descended from uh, lower animals. Do you relish the development of creatures and do you buy into almost an ephemeral spiritual nature of how we've grown from each of these animals and creatures and living forms and become what we are? Is there a connection that you always kept in the back of your mind in your work?
1: Um, I, I think in my work, the, the interesting part is that you get to see that larger perspective. So when you sample um, many regions on Earth, and particularly many rock layers in the same region, you can basically flip through them like pages in a book. And you can see how the characters change through time. Um, usually, it, it's an incomplete story. It's not perfect where you get to see one form grading beautifully into another. Um, but in some cases, when things are really well preserved, uh, you get to see small-scale changes that actually come pretty close to showing how one species Changes into another, or descend, or sorry, produces descendants that change into another uh, form, um, and, and paint that picture completely. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's more neat, uh, it, interesting watching how has changed in the past and some of these large scale changes. So, um, from my insect insect work in particular, uh, we're able to look at insects that around at the same time as dinosaurs, and we actually get a, a cool picture of um flowering plants coming onto the scene in these cretaceous ecosystems and taking over from conifers or cone bearing plants and insect groups that are around now that are associated with flowering plants really diversifying in that time and many of the same groups that are around today we've sort of inherited from the dinosaurs they haven't changed much over the last 65 million years or 66 million years um but there's a crazy in, or increase in diversity um the the cast is continuously growing And um, we get to see some groups uh, succeed, others fail, and disappear. Um, But it's sort of a neat um, cast of characters that you get to watch through the the, the series of this book, or the the pages in this book.
0: I must admit, a love affair for the American West, as well as Western Canada. It would seem that uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and so forth are treasure troves of fossilized remains. Have you found it as such?
1: Certainly. So we are one of the best places, the prairie provinces, I should say, are one of the best places to go looking for dinosaur remains. And also, as you head further to the east, um, a lot of western Canada and also the central, central United States during the Cretaceous were under a seaway called the Western Interior Seaway. Um, so they, at that time, the Rocky Mountains were just being pushed up um, and they produced sort of a, a depression in the middle of the continent that filled with a seaway that stretched all the way from the Gulf of Mexico up to Alaska, um, or the Arctic Ocean, I should say. Um, And during different parts of the Cretaceous, we were either on the coast, we're preserving sediments on land with dinosaur remains in them, or we were in the ocean, uh, depending on what sea level it was, and we're preserving marine reptiles, so these Loch Ness Ness monster-looking animals, um, and things like ammonites. And this story stretches all the way through the center of uh, North America, but some of the best places to sample it are places like the Prairie Provinces um, and also the uh, northern states as well. And uh, we're really lucky in Saskatchewan in that we're right on that coastline. So during parts of the Cretaceous, we get dinosaurs. During other parts, we're underwater and we're preserving some of these marine reptiles and ammonites. It's a really neat mix. Whereas other uh, states and also provinces, uh, it's more heavily biased towards one or the other of these two things. Either you get those land animals or you get the marine animals. You don't necessarily get both, at least not in large quantities. Um, So Saskatchewan, Alberta, and also the, the states directly to the south are fantastic places to be looking at this material.
0: In New York State, one would think that there'd be a need for anthropology courses, paleontology courses, and yet they are few and far between How does the Royal Museum act as an educational tool for the community and for the world at large?
1: So, uh, many of the curators at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum are also adjunct professors at local universities, and we offer teaching, or sorry, uh, classes through those universities or supervised graduate students. We're actually a major training um, center for graduate students in paleontology, archaeology, zoology, and a few other topics. And It allows us to basically help with the university um, in the areas, or universities in the area, by providing our collection almost like a series of books. um, And our labs are open to students in order for training opportunities or to create training opportunities. Um, Beyond that, a lot of the specimens that are in museums really are like books. Um, They're loaned out to universities and other researchers worldwide uh, for their research projects in support of science um, across a range of topics.
0: There's the story, uh, possibly apocryphal, that Lewis and Mary Leakey wanted to create a curriculum for high school and lower college students. Is there an effort to reach into high schools and incorporate what you're doing with young people so they grow into the love of it?
1: Certainly. And that's where the sort of public-facing side of the Royal Saskatchewan Museum is really important. Um, we do work with uh, grade schools um, in terms of their uh, museum visits and specialized programming that way. Um, also, actual in-school visits, um, and we do some outreach activities with the research staff here as well, um, largely at the university or high school levels. And a lot of the students that are working in the labs, particularly our volunteers, are either um, work placements for high school students or um, volunteers that are interested as uh people that are transitioning from high school into university, they want, they're want they interested in natural sciences, and they will come work in the lab here doing things like dinosaur bone preparation, or join us on some of our field trips uh, to excavate new skeletons or to work on new field sites. So it's sort of a almost a gateway drug to the sciences. It gets people hooked on the natural sciences, we hope, um, and, and shows them the range of opportunities that are there um, so that they hopefully follow those sorts of career paths. Um, there is a bit more of an emphasis on Um, Sort of high tech jobs these days, but natural history positions uh, are still very important uh, to learning about our surroundings and um, our place on this planet.
0: If someone were listening in the audience and said to themselves, my God, I'd love
1: to do what that gentleman is doing,
0: what advice would you give him?
1: Well, um, if they are students, um, basically covering your topics in terms of the sciences going through high school are very important uh, to keep a wide range of options open. Also looking for volunteer opportunities. So um, I started off myself uh, working at a summer camp in Drumheller in southern Alberta. Um, Because I was interested in paleontology, started off as a volunteer, ended up working my way up through the ranks there, um, and eventually went on to university studies in paleontology as well. But many of the people that I work side by side with um, started off as volunteers in some way, shape, or form. Um, including the curatorial assistant that did most of the preparation work on Scotty. Um, He was originally a radio announcer um, or an ad ad writer for a local radio station, got involved with the museum as a volunteer, um, and eventually stayed on with the museum as a curatorial assistant to prepare bones in the lab and spent 10 years' worth of his life preparing Scotty. So these sorts of um, hard career lines don't necessarily exist within the natural history or necessarily natural sciences. Um, and many people come to it in roundabout ways. But it's sort of an interesting option that's open all the time, and a lot of it hinges on volunteer work or getting some exposure, getting your foot in the door somewhere. And the American Museum of Natural History is a great place to do that sort of thing locally.
0: Is there any effort on the part of the Royal Museum to have online coursework?
1: To some extent, most of that hinges out of local universities. stems from local universities. We sort of do a little bit more in the way of... Um, social media work, um, and uh, trying to present our field work on a regular basis, and then outreach through universities. Beyond that, um, some of our publications, or whenever possible, uh, we make sure that our research publications are available um, freely online. Um, It's sort of a major Canadian push for research um, these days. And right now, uh, we're working on things like um, making some of the bones from Scotty um, freely available online as 3D PDFs. So we did a lot of scanning work or laser scanning work um, as part of upcoming publications. And we're hoping to have a component online, uh, almost like a virtual museum, that people can visit and look at the bones up close. They can't necessarily visit the skeleton themselves.
0: Mark Twain often said that when he was in the company of somebody interesting, he couldn't explain it. There was simply something there. There seems to be something there in regard to the Royal Museum. You're rather distinctive. Can you give us a short precy history of the organization?
1: Oh, geez. Um, Well, the RSM stretches back to 1906. It was one of the first um, provincial museums established in Western Canada. Um, We've had a fairly long and intensive research career, particularly for paleontology, uh, or if I I were to focus on paleontology, um, for things like fossil mammals, um, and more recently work on dinosaurs and marine reptiles, and with uh, my joining the museum about five years ago, uh, work on amber. But it's been sort of a history that's focused on research, and um, not necessarily strictly curation or acquiring new specimens, but making use of those specimens and um, contributing on a larger scale. The other place where the museum has really shone has been some of our work with First Nations groups in um, Saskatchewan and Canada. So the RSM was one of the first institutions to work on um, repatriating um, First Nations collections or is in the uh, American parlance, Indian uh, collections that were um, basically had no purpose in a museum or should never have been collected. Um, They're more precious to the communities themselves. Um, And also involving some of these groups in things like gallery design. So we are one of the few museums that has a very heavy outside influence um, from First Nations in terms of gallery design and allowing them to tell their story through us. So it's not necessarily just research. It's also um, getting community involvement and a lot of the stakeholders that are involved in the uh, surroundings, involved in the museum itself and how we present ourselves to our audience and also on a research stage.
0: I'm doing something personally myself with a a far western Indian tribal group close to the Canadian border. In point of fact, dealing with a people whose history is not literal, not written, raises a certain amount of difficulties. How do you approach the idea of a verbal translation and communication of its historiography?
1: We've dealt with that largely through involvement um, of the communities themselves. So they have that oral tradition that backs up a lot of their work and has persisted through the years. And it's just a question of talking to the people involved and getting them involved in exhibit design, getting them involved in the underlying stories that they'd like to tell about their communities and about their history. Um, it's not lost information just because it isn't written down. It's, just, it's in a different form. And if we access that properly and with the right amount of respect um, and consultation, it goes over quite well. Have you found a way
0: to ameliorate the tensions between two cultures and making use of the research opportunity? If people ask or demand bones and artifacts to be returned, it's hard to say no.
1: Yes, and we've been very accommodating that way, the the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. So it's not our place to hold on to this sort of material. We're safekeepers for it. Um, And and I think that's what's built this relationship between us and the First Nations uh, or Indigenous communities in in Canada and Saskatchewan is that willingness to work with them and to consult um, in cases where they're not able to provide um, the sort of care that they'd like for their objects. Um, We're able to help them out with that but largely it's up to them. Uh, It's not our place to dictate how these um, samples are held, um, follow their own traditions in terms of how they're handled um, and stored, things like that. Um, But it's sort of beyond my area of expertise.
0: Perhaps, uh, and uh, this may be a rather awkward question, but uh, curiosity, philosophically, it is difficult to deal with the idea of what is superstition and what is logical prerogative. Do does the museum, in point of fact, accept virtually all that indigenous peoples present as their truth, and simply try to embellish it and illustrate it?
1: Yes. Yeah, so in this case, it's a question of respecting um, their culture and trying to present it in the form that they'd like it uh, viewed by the public. Um, there's been a large push in Canada for truth and reconciliation over the last couple of years. And um, basically, we're doing our part in trying to provide uh, what they need to get their message across um, in the format that they'd like as well. I don't know if that fully answers your question.
0: Indeed, it does. There's a great deal that can be used as follow-up for this. I can imagine, particularly the type of youngster we spoke of before the program began, young people being enamored with the entire story of what the museum is doing. You mentioned museum and natural history, and certainly it's a fine place for research and information. There are things that the Royal Museum is doing and has done that are rather unique. Can you give us a perspective of the unique qualities of the museum, what it has that many other places of investigation don't have?
1: Um, I think what sort of sets us apart from other museums um, focused on natural history is that we have that focus on Saskatchewan. Um, So we're providing coverage or comprehensive coverage for fossils, um, archaeology or ethnology collections, and zoology through the province. Um, And Saskatchewan is a neat, relatively neat place to be working, um, particularly for paleontology, because we have a very good representation from the late Cretaceous all the way through to modern times um, so we have neat faunas for dinosaurs marine reptiles uh, mammals um, basically eocene materials so of 40 50 million years old and also sort of ice age type material um, around twelve thousand years old um, but these large collections and an intensive research focus that has allowed us to build these collections in some sort of context so there's a reason to collect this material and a lot of the material has been published upon Or presented to the public in a different form Um, so it gets out there Um, it's not hidden away on shelves Um, we we have the luxury of not having a massive collection Um, so we're able to do that with a lot of our samples and in a fairly timely fashion so there's sort of that from the ground for paleontology through to preparation through to publication and the public is involved in many steps along the way and gets to see the end products fairly quickly
0: Would I be presumptuous to say that the public has the prerogative and right to see virtually everything beyond the walls of the museum?
1: Certainly, yes. Uh, We do behind-the-scenes tours for collections, um, and we have requests for loan material, everything from researchers, actually right through to artists. So if they're interested in sketching bones of modern bison or... um, other artifacts within the collection. We do our best to accommodate that material and also to accommodate outreach-type um, uh, activities through traveling exhibits, through uh, loans of material to different uh, small, uh, small schools and things like that, um, to allow them to share this material beyond the walls of the museum.
0: Is there an effort to try to find a, a kind of elemental truth in the animals themselves and the fossilized remains themselves. Are there links with other museums with the same purpose?
1: Oh certainly. Um, so within Canada there's sort of a network of natural history museums and there's an international network as well. So we've actually worked with teams at places like the American Museum of Natural History. So Mark Norrell's is a good example there um, looking at some of the coprolite or fossil poop specimens. Um, found in Saskatchewan, and uh, beyond having Scotty the T-Rex, uh, Saskatchewan is actually famous for having the only known example of a fossilized Tyrannosaur uh, coprolator poop. Um, so analytical work and research work, it isn't limited to just one museum. It isn't limited to um, just Canadian work either. Um, there are researchers from all over the world that are either borrowing this material or working with researchers at the RSM to study this material. and. Translated into something that's meaningful in the public sphere, either for exhibits or for research contributions that make um, some insight into this material, create some insight into it. Um, so, in the case of the copper, like what animals were they feeding on? How old were those animals? Can we use new technology to actually image this material better than we have in the past and draw new information out of it?
0: Are you ever frustrated with uh, Hollywood and American culture's focus on dinosaurs? One would imagine that if you asked anyone what a T-Rex was, they'd be able to describe the movie to you. If you were to say trilobite, they would ask you to spell it. Is there a certain amount of frustration with that, or do you use it as an impetus just to open the door and peek in?
1: Um... I think in some ways it's a little bit frustrating in that uh, sort of the it hasn't kept up with developments and research, but at the same time, Jurassic Park, as an example, it is sort of a great um, driver for science. It is what got a lot of people interested in paleontology. And uh, actually, right now, we've got uh, many positions that are being filled by researchers that were um, kids that grew up in the Jurassic Park era, so 1995 or thereabouts it is what got them interested in paleontology sort of open that door for them. And now they've gone on to careers in academia or in museums. So it's sort of a mixed blessing. We get the benefits there in terms of the interest and potentially public funding or the ability to use new techniques on these samples, because it is something that's of interest to a wide range of people. Um, at the same time, yeah, groups like trilobites, some of the small parasitic wasps that I work on in Cretaceous deposits, they're never going to make it in a Hollywood movie. Um, but at the same time, many of the people, like I said before, it's sort of a gateway drug. People get interested in dinosaurs, and from there, they go on to other groups of fossils potentially, um, or other areas of natural history. We're just grateful that we're able to get those people excited and um, on that particular path.
0: I remember as a young man being in the audience, and someone at the United Nations was speaking of the great man Ralph Bunch, the first African American to really have a position of hierarchy. In the U.N., young man in the back stood up and said, I like Ralph Bunch, but I can't eat him for lunch. What rationale and explanation can you give to the public at large that would say, all right, you're doing this and it's fascinating, but where the value for me?
1: Well, I think a lot of the work that we're doing, if I can use insects as an example, um, the work that we're doing on Cretaceous insects and amber allows us to tease out relationships among modern insects that we can't necessarily see by looking at modern insects. So one of the groups of wasps that I'm working on has more than 100,000 modern species in it. They all look very similar to each other. But if we go back to the Cretaceous, we can actually see how that group got its start and some of the larger relationships within the group that allow us to make meaningful decisions um, in in modern faunas. So these wasps are used as um, almost like a replacement for uh, pesticides. They are a biological control agent. They lay their eggs inside other insects. Those eggs hatch, they kill the insect that they were laid in, and um, they're used uh, for things like greenhouses to control populations of pest species there. But if you don't understand the relationships between these groups, and ecological relationships, like what their hosts are, um, it's not possible to use these animals in this way. Um, so it, it opens doors that way. Many times it also, um, the background work that we're doing in sections um, studying these rock layers paves the way for um different economic mineral developments. So a lot of the areas that we're working on are related to coal seams or are in sedimentary layers that are good reservoirs for um, things like gas or oil. Understanding these rock layers on a larger scale, it may not be directly related to paleontology, but we're able to look at the fossils that are trapped in these rock layers and understand their age fairly quickly and how the layers relate to each other, um, potentially teasing out new oil deposits and things like that.
0: An earlier guest guest was a practicing physicist, theoretical physicist, and he was working at the Particle Collider in Geneva. He said that when people started writing about the God particle, he resented it deeply, that there was a beginning. Do you believe, as a paleontologist, we will ever get to the point where we find the conception, the beginning, a first that life developed around Or is that uh, an inane concept? Um, I
1: don't know if we'll ever get that sort of um, luck in terms of the fossils that we're finding. So we've got material from the pre-Cambrian or before 600 million years ago. Um, But a lot of this material is, um, well, it doesn't have a shell or a skeleton that preserves particularly well. So the odds of it preserving within a rock layer are very small. Um, We have to be very lucky in order to find this material and finding some sort of single cellular animal millions if not billions of years ago. Um, I don't know if we'll ever find the one or anything closely related to it. We do get a sense of when different groups took off and how quickly they diversified, but I don't think we'll ever be able to trace it back to that one animal or one group of organisms.
0: Have you reached the point where you can argue that certain groups will not be extinct? is a perennial quality about them?
1: Oh, um, sort of. We have some sense of um, how different groups of animals are related to their ecosystems and what sorts of changes they can tolerate. So a good example would be looking at climate warming nowadays. Um, We get some sense of how animal ranges might change based on their ancient ranges, looking at the Eocene or the Cretaceous, so either 45 or 66 million years ago. Beyond that, though, um, we can't really guarantee that one group will survive an extinction or um, a particular type of extinction. They come in all sorts of different um, types as well. It's not all asteroid impacts or anything like that. Um, There are other more subtle things that wipe out groups of animals as well.
0: What is the current focal point, a major focal point, or many, that the museum is concentrating on now, something that the listening audience can follow in the trades, in the papers, read about, watch, and so
1: forth? Well, uh, right now we're working on new dinosaur specimens from Saskatchewan. So um, Scotty was excavated back in 1994, 1995 was the beginning of the dig site. It ran for about five years um, in terms of the field work and then took another 20 years worth of work in the lab in order to prepare the specimen. Now that we've got larger specimens like that out of the way, uh, we're looking for new specimens as well. Um, So we're working on things like uh, triceratops specimens from places like Grasslands National Park, which is right up against the American border. Um, We're also working on duck-billed dinosaurs. Uh, There's a hadrosaurus specimen near the town of Shahneman, fairly close to the region where Scotty was found, um, that we're excavating as well. So in terms of new developments for vertebrate paleontology in the province, we're going that way. For invertebrate paleontology, or things without backbones, uh, we're working on new amber deposits from dinosaur bone beds and what they tell us about those dinosaur bone beds. And also a new set of insect inclusions from the very end of the Cretaceous. So we're able to sample these rock layers that were just before the dinosaurs went extinct. Um, In this case, about 66 million years ago, maybe 67 million years ago. And we're slowly building up a sample set that's large enough to look at the insects that were on the landscape back then. Um, which is a a major gap in the fossil record of insects. We don't really have many amber deposits between about 78 million years ago and about 50 million years ago. So we're slowly filling in those gaps using Saskatchewan specimens.
0: For those who are simply apprentice-like and interested, what can they expect to do on a sample dig funded by the museum?
1: Um, Most of our sample digs are um, looking for vertebrate fossils, so dinosaur bones. Um, A lot of this is basically removing the rock from above the specimen, um, digging down to the specimen bones themselves with finer tools like trowels and hand picks, um, tranching around the bone. So basically, it's almost like making a a mushroom out of your bone. Uh, Or if you're digging through something like a cake, if you use that as an analogy or an example, um, digging from the top of the cake down, exposing the bone, trenching around the bone and then making a mushroom shape out of it so that it can be jacketed at the top with these plaster bandages um, to support the the weight of the rock and the bone itself. Then these jackets are tipped over. Um, The remaining sediment is scooped out from behind the bone as much as we can, um, jacketed up on the other side so it's completely encased in a plaster jacket and trucked back to the museum for preparation. And preparation takes it from there, uh, basically opening the jacket and removing the rest of the sediment and supporting everything with glues and plasters so that the bone fragments don't move relative to each other. And we get something that is solid enough to be a freestanding piece in the collection.
0: One would assume that to be exquisite patience attached to this kind of research, it wouldn't be something done by somebody who wants to finish it in an hour.
1: No, it's a large-scale investment. That's why we value our volunteers so much. They put in many, many hours preparing some of these bones. Um, If we're lucky, the matrix or the rock that's around the bone is relatively soft. It can be scraped off with things like scalpels or um, small hand tools. Um, And that's typically what we have our volunteers doing. At the other end of the spectrum are some of the bones like Scotty's, where they're encased in something called ironstone. It's a really hard um, claystone with a lot of iron content to it. And those are actually chiseled out with these little air tools. They almost look like an overgrown version of a dentist drill that drives a little a miniature jackhammer spike and chips off little flakes of bone. And that was where uh, a, a lot of the work by Wes Long, the curatorial system I mentioned earlier, um, came into play. He spent uh, more than 10 years of his life chiseling um, the bones of Scotty out of its host rock um, in order to expose it. We tend to do the smaller, sort of smaller, lighter scale version with our volunteers, though. So there's some. Um, a little bit more immediate gratification. It's not a 10-year investment.
0: You described earlier in our conversation that Scotty had bite marks on the bone. In point of fact, uh, are you satisfied with the literature that presents some sort of fictionalized discussion of what life was like in any period involving any species? Or do you feel those texts, particularly for young readers, are still to be prepared
1: um, I think a, there's a wide range of literature out there for, um, young readers that are interested in dinosaurs. Some of it involves uh, consultation with scientists and they actually get it very close to the mark in terms of what we're seeing on the bones versus what we sort of infer would have happened in the past. Other pieces are a little bit more speculative, a little bit more fantasy, which is fine. And as long as you're willing to chalk that sort of material up to fantasy writing, um, it's perfectly fine. People that enjoy their reading too. Um, the neat part about um, some of the work for the exhibit at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum and also some of the consultation work with uh, artists that are or that are interested in the exhibit work or also sort of building off of it is bringing these stories together. So looking at all the different injuries that are present on the skeleton and teasing out details um, of some of these weird facial injuries and how they might have happened. And I think we're getting pretty Close to having a fairly good understanding of how these injuries happened. We don't necessarily know whether um, or how much damage they did to the animal as a whole, though.
0: It would seem that uh, every day you have in this marvelous job uh, is a chapter in a book. Have you prepared or thought of creating a series that could be used for the public at large?
1: Um, most of my work is focused on the research side of things, but we're getting fairly close. We're actually working on a book of um, fo- focused on the vertebrate inclusions, or the things with backbones, found in Burmese Cretaceous Amber. So there's a deposit about 99 million years ago that I've been doing a lot of work on recently with a team in China led by Da Zing. And uh, we've been finding things like... Um, wing fragments, feet fragments, half of a hatchling bird, these weird toothed birds called anantirnithenes, and a small scrap of dinosaur tail as well in this one amber deposit. Um, so we're hoping to provide sort of an overview that's digestible by the public at least um, and gets a lot of that sort of scientific content out there but in an approachable format. And we're aiming to do that this year. It's sort of one of those larger-scale projects that I have on the go in the background right now.
0: Is there any way uh, that you might surmise for the paleontologist to discern the distinction between reflex and intelligence?
1: Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, Not really. Most of the work that we do would hinge on comparison to modern relatives and I think in many cases it's hard to establish even with modern relatives. um, So what does a bird treat as sort of an instinctual behavior versus something that actually requires forethought? Um, I don't know if we understand birds' that well for many of their features.
0: Has it ever been thought to go backwards, start with the bird and go back to the creature, rather than Certainly. forward?
1: Yes, and that's one of the benefits of working on dinosaurs now, is that we actually have a fairly good understanding of what is a modern testbed animal. And to bring it back to the amber work that I was talking about, um, I do a lot of work on feathers in amber, um, in relatives of modern birds, so these toothed birds that are fairly closely related to modern birds, and also dinosaurs, um, where the, the, basically we have feathers attached to a skeleton. And we can look at feather evolution. So, dinosaurs, those early um, Cretaceous examples um, that we were talking about earlier, where the, it's in sedimentary rocks from the early Cretaceous rocks of China, um, the feathers start out as these little bristle like things that almost look like mammal hair in many ways and slowly but surely develop a series of branching patterns that eventually lead to the three tiers of branching we see in modern feathers Um, now we can take a look at um, birds as an example of this and also their embryos and trace out how feathers develop in modern birds and try to draw comparisons between that feather development and what we're seeing in the fossil record and what these sort of two lines of evidence might tell about each other and about feather evolution in general so it's a really exciting time to be working on some of these problems Um, simply because we have this larger perspective and we have other sort of test bed animals to try out these ideas on.
0: I would agree it's an exciting time. Are there any presuppositions that we've accepted over the years as fact that we are now presently constantly challenging?
1: Um, I think so. So feathered dinosaurs are a good example. Um, Back when they made the first Jurassic Park movie, it was perfectly correct in terms of the science or the, the leading science at the time to have scaly dinosaurs um, if you were to do the same movie now with the same amount of um, scientific input in the creative process, most of your dinosaurs, like Velociraptor, have some sort of feathers on them. Um, probably look a heck of a lot more like an ostrich or modern bird than they would in the uh, original movie. But it's part of that continuously changing series. So as our ideas improve or our understanding improves of these fossils, um, how we portray them in the public as well changes. And it's part of that larger transition from slow lumbering beasts that were completely unintelligent to animals that are probably warm-blooded, probably fairly quick and active and a lot more bird-like than we would have thought even 50 years ago.
0: Has there ever been a supposition as to what might have happened if not for the instantaneous extinction that people presuppose? These creatures, in your own mind and research, have the capacity to develop true intelligence and advancement.
1: Well, um, modern birds are a pretty good example, so not all of the dinosaurs were wiped out. Um, but I don't think we'd be talking about anything beyond that. Um, so there have been sort of sci-fi type um, yeah, um, estimates or um, speculations based on how dinosaurs may have evolved if they'd followed the same sort of um, climate driven pathways that affected humans over the years Um, but a lot of that is just speculation it's the realm of science fiction and it, it's hard to predict how one group of animals would pass through the same series of events on a geological scale and what they'd come out looking like on the far end, or if they'd be driven towards some of the same features. So birds are fairly complex animals, even as they are. Um, if you had other groups of dinosaurs surviving as well, I don't know if they would have developed other um, sort of large-scale features, or if they would have remained largely as they were, um, they were very successful for, well, from about 200 million years ago to about 65 million years ago, um, which is longer than they've actually been gone from the planet.
0: There's so much mystery in dealing with this work. It reminds one of that uh, saying that something could be an enigma inside a puzzle, inside a box, what is truth and what is not, that seems relative to the investigation of the given day. For the listening audience, uh, Ryan, if you would not mind, place them at the front door of the museum and give them as best you can a virtual tour?
1: Certainly. Um, So the Royal Saskatchewan Museum is a... From the outside, it looks like a small one-story building, um, but it's actually two floors. Um, As you go in through the lobby, there's a series of staircases, or sorry, a pair of staircases. Uh, One leads us downstairs uh, to the paleontology galleries and also the archaeology galleries. Um, The paleontology galleries start off with, um, well now it's a broad view into Scotty and other Tyrannosaurus um, specimens from Saskatchewan. And it's a two-floor cut through um, that allows people to look at Scotty from foot height and also from a balcony on the second floor at head height and shine lights on different body regions to look at the injuries on the skeleton. If you proceed through that area, um, past all of our Tyrannosaur coverage for um, basically injuries, growth patterns, habitat, stuff like that in the Cretaceous, um, we move on through galleries that focus on uh, marine reptiles, and also um, from, from there move on to post-extinction animals. So some of the large mammals, um, mammoths, things like that, that existed after the fact. Um, our First Nations gallery takes people through a series of um, scenes, it basically flows off of the end of the paleontology gallery, it takes people through a series of scenes from um, different parts in First Nations history and the prairies. Um, everything from pre-settlement days or pre-colonial days um, through to modern issues uh, with treaty rights and things like that. The second floor of the museum is basically a series of dioramas that take people through different regions of Saskatchewan and highlight the local fauna from in open-air dioramas where you can get very close to stuffed animals that are set in a scene that is um, basically keyed into one time of year at a particular region within the province, and allows people to walk through a series of these little snapshots or dioramas uh, that take you um, as close as you can get to being face to face with these animals in their natural habitat um, in different regions through the province, and culminates in um, basically an ecological um, or um, human impact um, study. And talk about how we're changing our environment around us and uh, what we can do to improve how we're dealing with nature or um, get more involved in nature. And that's about it. Beyond that, um, the museum has a, um, off to the right-hand side of the doors, there's a small gallery or um, auditorium, I should say, uh, that's used for public exhibits um, or um, stage shows. And um, one of the upcoming things that is part of the Scotty exhibit is actually a live stage show with um, uh, basically a dinosaur costume, for lack of a better description, that brings kids into closer contact with the life reconstruction, um, basically a half or third scale um, T-Rex model. It's about 15, or 15 feet long. Um, that allows them to interact with um, something that's a little bit more um, kid-appropriate and also uh, provide some facts about Tyrannosaurus as well. So um, Beyond that, um, there are program gall- or, um, staff that roam the galleries and also provide one-on-one programs with different groups um, covering topics in um, archaeology or um, First Nations uh, work, as well as paleontology and zoology.
0: You mentioned making certain exhibits kid-friendly, as you say. A Field Museum in Chicago, for instance, has that program, Dozen with Dinos, Is there any uh, sense of developing such uh, an exhibition at the uh, Royal Museum? Uh,
1: We're hopeful. We're just starting off with this new exhibit space. So it was a big push to create a um, a larger opening within the gallery that can be used as a gathering space for either events or um, things like that sleepover that you mentioned. Um we, may, we have the potential to provide that sort of stuff. Uh, none of it is um, firmly on the books yet. We're starting off with a stage show. Um, right now we're wrapping up our um, basically our, our, our large influx of uh, grade school students at the end of their school year and moving on from there during the summer. So hopefully new programs rolling out during the summer.
0: Those things uh, in the area that have been untouched and unexamined over the millennium Do you constantly send out feelers as to what's out there and what's been found and what could be found?
1: Yes. Yeah, We have uh, right now uh, four paleo staff um, that are out for the better part of the summer um, conducting excavations or doing site checks at different regions around the province. Um, just yesterday, I was down at a site with uh, some of the other paleontology team members and looking for amber and coal seams at another museum, actually, or another interpretive site in the province, um, something called the clay bank uh, brick site, where they'd use local clay to build um, ovens um, for um, ceramics and whatnot and also buildings. Um, But in amongst these uh, clay units, they have uh, coal and also rock units that are useful for or contain dinosaur bones. So we're out prospecting these areas, um, searching the slopes for new finds. And uh, it's like that all over the province. Uh, We're out almost as much as we are home during the summer. It's a lot of field work and a lot of fun. And always turning up new material or having uh, members of the public bringing new material to our attention. It's pretty exciting.
0: It would sound that uh, the out of doors or your laboratory and your museum, with the Royal Museum and the building simply being its center, is that too ideal a description of it?
1: No, it really is that way uh, in many ways. So we have the the main Royal Saskatchewan Museum building that's sort of our public-facing side of things. There's a research exhibits and collections building across the street that uh, basically serves as storage for the specimens, the other 95% of the material that isn't on exhibit at any given time, and sort of a, almost like a library for these research samples, as well as a, a building area for building new exhibits, um, and, um, the art that goes into that, it's a lot of work, a lot of it is done in-house, um, and the research staff is sort of split, we spend most of our, um, winters, um, in these research buildings, either here or at the T-Rex Discovery Center in East End, studying specimens, uh, creating research reports, or working on the collection itself to build it up um, in terms of usefulness. And a lot of our summer is spent out in the field gathering new specimens and uh, basically following up on previous work, trying to expand uh, the number of samples in the collection and also our coverage of the province.
0: You mentioned your five-some-odd five years at the museum. Is there a particular exhibit... Ryan, a particular effort on the part of researchers that is close to your sense of enjoyment and pleasure?
1: Oh Well, the, the recent T-Rex exhibit has been a lot of fun to be honest with you. Um, I started out as an undergraduate student interested in looking at theropod dinosaurs or these big meat-eating dinosaurs um, and was had the good luck of being able to be involved in the exhibit design for this. Um, our exhibits team did a fantastic job and being able to contribute some of the scientific content for that and tap the the sort of researcher network to get the components we needed for this and to tell the stories that we wanted to with this exhibit was a heck of a lot of fun and it was nice to see it all come together um beyond that my i guess my next favorite for talking about exhibits um would be um some of the mixed interpretive material. so we've, we've got uh, one mastodon specimen where there's the actual skull material, uh, the real materials on exhibit, and across the sort of hallway from it, there's a half-life reconstruction that has the same animals sort of peering out at you. So there's sort of the seeing the bone directly compared to the modern. Um, I love that sort of approach to paleontology exhibits. I think it puts it a, a lot more of a face to these um, skeletons um, than many other museums are able to.
0: The use of DNA to bring back uh, the mammoth and so forth uh, presupposes that one can, in some way genetically mate mammoth fossilized DNA with modern Indian elephants.
1: Do you buy into that premise? Um, I don't have a full or, sorry, I don't have expertise in that area. Um, as best I understand, it's a question of injecting um, DNA from one into the embryo of another and then seeing it through to um, birth, basically. Um, Beyond that, I don't really have a firm understanding of what's involved.
0: Are you a a progenitor of that kind of research? Is there support for that type of research as you see it?
1: Um, Potentially more than anything else. um, The genetic research that goes on in paleontology is focused on things like tracing populations of mammoths. We're not really... Um, It's not our main goal to bring these these animals back from um, extinction or anything like that. Um, It's more sort of an interesting offshoot question, should we, could we, that sort of stuff. Um, The the more sort of hardcore serious research questions are, can we trace populations of mammoths across these areas um, based on their genetic material they're leaving behind? And not necessarily just whole skeletons or things like that. Um, Some of the workers in eastern Canada are looking at things like um, urine samples that are preserved in uh, permafrost. Can we look at the genetic material that's trapped in that and figure out which groups of animals were on the landscape or environment of DNA, basically, like what they're doing in modern um, streams and rivers? Can we look at these ancient deposits and tease out which groups of animals were there without even having the skeletal material preserved? Is
0: global warming a benefit to your research? It sounds inane, but is there truth in
1: that? Um. Not really, to be honest with you. Um, Drought type conditions uh, make it easier to see exposures of different rock layers, which makes it a little bit easier for paleontology. Um, But on the whole, um, it's a bad, bad thing for resource development in areas and also farming. We rely very much on um, a lot of these areas being used for farmland or that are being used for farmland. Um, access to sites, and it's not good for our landowners or the people that we're working with um, if climate conditions keep driving towards um, basically perpetual drought or extreme weather or anything along those lines. It doesn't make our lives any easier as paleontologists.
0: For those out there, and I would imagine we're presupposing that we have to come back to Scotty repeatedly, can you give us a a description of the the find-the-moment for a young mind out there who's really wrapped around it
1: okay um, so in about 1993 or 1994 there was a school teacher that was on a field trip uh, with our um, curator of paleontology Tim Takerich at the time so this, this uh, teacher's name was Robert Gebhardt. he's from East End or is Robert Gebhardt? I should say he's from East End um, and he found part of a, a transfer bone poking out of the ground um, in a place called Chambry Cooley um, near the town of East End. Uh, they didn't realize the importance of it uh, at the time, but uh, Tim came back later and uh, some other bones that were poking out of the surface turned out to be pieces of the skull, um, including teeth which gave us a good sense that um, the specimen was probably relatively um, complete, or at least the bone preservation was very good. Um, so they began excavating the specimen, and over the span of, well, I guess the first field season, they had a sense of how much of the material or how much of the specimen was actually there. Um, and it took them another four field seasons in order to get all of this material out of the field. The skeleton itself was encased largely, or a lot of it at least, in these big ironstone concretions which are basically blobs of harder rock that form where they're organics in sedimentary rock layers um, so there was a lot of work hauling some of these big blocks out and across the valley um, and it included teams of horses to roll some of these blocks over and get them um, to where they needed to be or even big cranes to load them on flatbed trucks in order to get them back to the lab for preparation. Um, from there, the preparation process started. There was a lot of that microjack type work or the, the fine detailed uh, chisel work that I was talking about earlier. Um, back in the lab, spanning basically 20 years worth of work, um, much of it by the present curator assistant, West Long. Um, and at that point, they had enough of the skeleton material or um, the skeleton itself to begin research on the specimen, and also begin the molding and casting process to create replicas um, or standing models of some of these skeletal uh, pieces, and ultimately the whole skeleton that's now on display in Regina at the uh, Royal Saskatchewan Museum, but also in East End at the T-Rex Discovery Center, which is sort of an offshoot of the Royal Saskatchewan Museum.
0: In doing this type of research, uh, what methodology is used to ensure that the land will not be incurred upon while you're doing the research?
1: Um, with the Scotty site, they actually had people on the ground or at the site around the clock during the entire field season, and they are working all the way from when the snow melted to the first snow again each field season. So it's a very long, hard field season, and there were people on site um, to make sure that the site wasn't messed with. At the same time, um, it was a boon for the local um, town of East End. They were able to run tours out to the site, and they had thousands of people through to actually see the excavation in process. Um, and, and uh, tell the story in its natural setting um, as part of the preparation for the T-Rex Discovery Center in East End.
0: This is a fascinating discussion, and unfortunately, looking at the clock, we only have three minutes attached to the remainder of it. How would a personal listening audience who really wants to become involved, either in support or informationally, how might they contact the Royal Museum?
1: Um, we can be. We have, we have a website, uh, royalsaskmuseum.ca, um, that you're more than welcome to check out. It covers most of our uh, curatorial staff as well if you're interested in the research side of things, um, as well as contacts for our volunteer programs.
0: Can there develop an exchange between the listener per se and someone at the museum who's willing to share?
1: Certainly, yes. Um, so we answer questions about individual specimens and also uh, try to help people with uh, paleontological information in general, if they're interested. And we can be accessed through the website as well. Their email addresses for uh, contacts there.
0: Is there an educational gift shop for young and old?
1: Yes, yeah. So one of the parts that I missed on the virtual tour there um, is just inside the door there is a gift shop related to the the museum itself. Um, They also accept donations if people are interested in funding either different exhibits at the museum or um, just general gifts towards um, student support uh, for some of those graduate students that I mentioned at the museum or different programs at the museum.
0: What are your personal plans for the future, Ryan?
1: Um, I'm fairly busy uh, on some of this work in Burmese amber and also Saskatchewan amber, um, mostly looking at insects, but also looking at things like feathers and skeletal material. um, And that's sort of the direction that recent work has taken me. Um, So a lot of exploring, different uh, dinosaur bone beds, looking for amber, and also um, working on some bigger, more exotic specimens from international deposits. It's a lot of fun.
0: In the one minute we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for people in the listening audience?
1: Um, I think if I could stress anything in terms of getting involved in paleontology, um, volunteering is a huge, huge thing. Um, And if you have an interest in this sort of stuff and the financial means, uh, donating this sort of stuff is important as well. Um, it's amazing what a small donation can do in terms of um, student studies or research projects in general and if that donation is of your time, that's fantastic too. Uh, Just anything to get people involved.
0: This has been a, a marvelous hour. I would wonder, Ryan, whether you'd be amenable to doing it again and expanding upon it later. Certainly. It has been our pleasure. If you would stay online for a few seconds Following the end of this communication, we'd certainly appreciate it. No problem. Our guest has been Ryan McKellar from the Royal Museum in Saskatchewan. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Be with us again next time.